Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. Volume 5, Chapter 8. Enoch Emery knew that his life would never be the same again, because the thing that was going to happen to him had started to happen. He'd always known that something was going to happen, but he hadn't known what. If he had been much given to thought, he might have thought that now was the time for him to justify his daddy's blood. But he didn't think in broad sweeps like that. Sometimes he didn't think, he only wondered. Then before long he would find himself doing this or that, like a bird finds itself building a nest when it hasn't actually been planning to. What was going to happen to him had started to happen when he had showed what was in the glass case to Hayes Motes. That was a mystery beyond his understanding, but he knew that what was going to be expected of him was something awful. His blood was more sensitive than any other part of him. It wrote doom all through him, except possibly in his brain, and the result was that his tongue, which edged out every few minutes, to test his fever blister, knew more than he did. The first thing that he found himself doing that was not normal was saving his pay. He was saving all of it, except what his landlady came to collect every week and what he had to use to buy something to eat with. He had a fondness for supermarkets. It was his custom to spend an hour or so every afternoon after he left the city park browsing around the canned goods and reading the cereal stories. Lately, he had been compelled to pick up a few things here and there that would not be bulky in his pockets, and he wondered if this could be the reason he was saving so much money on food. It could have been, but he had the suspicion that saving the money was connected with some larger thing. He had always been given to stealing, but he had never saved before. At the same time, he began cleaning his room. It was a little green room, or it had once been green, in the attic of an elderly rooming house. There was a mummified look and feel to his residence, but Enoch had never thought before of brightening the part, corresponding to his head, that he lived in. Then he simply found himself doing it. First he removed the rug from the floor and hung it out the window. This was a mistake because when he went to pull it back in, there were only a few long strings left with a carpet tack caught in one of them. He imagined it must have been a very old rug, and he decided to handle the rest of the furniture with more care. He washed the bed frame with soap and water and found that under the second layer of dirt it was pure gold, and this affected him so strongly that he washed the chair. It was a low, round chair that bulged around the legs, so it seemed to be in the act of squatting. The gold began to appear with the first touch of water, but it disappeared with the second. And with little more, the chair sat down as if this were the end of long years of inner struggle. Enoch didn't know if it was for him or against him. He had a nasty impulse to kick it to pieces, but he let it stay there exactly in the position it had sat in, because, for the time anyway, he was not a foolhardy boy who took chances on the meanings of things. For the time, he knew that what he didn't know was what mattered. The only other piece of furniture in the room was a washstand. This was built in three parts and stood on bird legs six inches high. The legs had clawed feet that were each one gripped around a small cannonball. The lowest part was a tabernacle-like cabinet, 
which was meant to contain a slop jar. Enoch didn't own a slop jar, but he had a certain reverence for the purpose of things, and since he didn't have the right thing to put on it, he left it empty. Directly over this place for the treasure, there was a gray marble slab, and coming up from behind it was a wooden trellis work of hearts, scrolls, and flowers, extending into a hunched eagle wing on each side, and containing in the middle, just at the level of Enoch's face when he stood in front of it, a small oval mirror. The wooden frame continued again over the mirror and ended in a crowned, horned headpiece, showing that the artist had not lost faith in his work. As far as Enoch was concerned, this piece had always been the center of the room, and the one that most connected him with what he didn't know. More than once after a big supper, he had dreamed of unlocking the cabinet and getting in it and then proceeding to certain rites and mysteries that he had a very vague idea about in the morning. In his cleaning up, his mind was on the washstand from the first, but as was usual with him, he began with the least important thing and worked around and in toward the center where the meaning was. So before he tackled the washstand, he took care of the pictures in the room. There were three of these, one belonging to his landlady, who was almost totally blind, but moved about by an acute sense of smell, and two of his own. Hers was a brown portrait of a moose standing in a small lake. The look of superiority on this animal's face was so insufferable to Enoch that if he hadn't been afraid of him, he would have done something about it a long time ago. As it was, he couldn't do anything in this room but what the smug face was watching, not shocked because nothing better could be expected, and not amused because nothing was funny. If he had looked all over for one, he couldn't have found a roommate that irritated him more. He kept up a constant stream of inner comment, uncomplimentary to the moose, though when he said something aloud, he was more guarded. The moose was in a heavy brown frame with leaf designs on it, and this added to his weight and his self-satisfied look. Enoch knew that the time had come when something had to be done. He didn't know what was going to happen in his room, but when it happened, he didn't want to have the feeling that the moose was running it. The answer came to him fully prepared. He realized, with a sudden intuition, that taking the frame off him would be equal to taking the clothes off him although he didn't have any on. And he was right, because when he had done it, the animal looked so reduced that Enoch could only snicker and look at him out of the corner of his eye. After this success, he turned his attention to the other two pictures. They were over calendars, and had been sent by the Hilltop Funeral Home and the American Rubber Tire Company. One showed a small boy in a pair of blue Dr. Denton sleepers kneeling in his bed, saying, and blessed daddy, while the moon looked in at the window. This was Enoch's favorite painting, and he hung it directly over his bed. The other pictured a lady wearing a rubber tire, and it hung directly across from the moose on the opposite wall. He left it where it was, pretty certain that the moose only pretended not to see it. Immediately after he finished with the pictures, he went out and bought chintz curtains, a bottle of gilt, and a paintbrush with all the money he had saved. This was a disappointment to him because he had hoped that the money would be for some new clothes for him, and here he saw it going into a set of drapes. He didn't know what the guilt was for until he got home with it. 
When he got home with it, he sat down in front of the slop jar cabinet in the washstand, unlocked it, and painted the inside of it with the gilt. Then he realized that the cabinet was to be used for something. Enoch never nagged his blood to tell him a thing until it was ready. He wasn't the kind of boy who grabs at any possibility and runs off, proposing this or that preposterous thing. In a large matter like this, he was always willing to wait for a certainty. And he waited for this one, certain at least that he would know in a few days. Then for about a week, his blood was in secret conference with itself every day, only stopping now and then to shout some order at him. On the following Monday, he was certain when he awoke that today was a day he was going to know on. His blood was rushing around like a woman who cleans up the house after the company has come, and he was surly and rebellious. When he realized that today was the day, he decided not to get up. He didn't want to justify his daddy's blood. He didn't want to be always having to do something that something else wanted him to do. They didn't know what it was, and that was always dangerous. Naturally, his blood was not going to put up with any attitude like this. He was at the zoo by 9.30, only a half hour later than he was supposed to be. All morning, his mind was not on the gate he was supposed to guard, but on chasing around after his blood, like a boy with a mop and a bucket, beating something here and sloshing down something there without a second's rest. As soon as the second shift guard came, Enoch headed toward town. Town was the last place he wanted to be because anything could happen there. All the time his mind had been chasing around, it had been thinking how as soon as he got off duty, he was going to sneak off home and go to bed. By the time he got into the center of the business district, he was exhausted and he had to lean against Walgreen's window and cool off. Sweat crept down his back and provoked him to itch so that in just a few minutes he appeared to be working his way across the glass with his muscles against a background of alarm clocks, toilet water, candies, sanitary pads, fountain pens, and flashlights displayed in all colors to twice his height. He appeared to be working his way to a rumbling noise which came from the center of a small alcove that formed the entrance to the drugstore. Here was a yellow and blue glass and steel machine belching popcorn into a cauldron of butter and salt. Enoch approached, already with his purse out, sorting his money. His purse was a long gray leather pouch tied at the top with a drawstring. It was the one he had stolen from his daddy, and he treasured it because it was the only thing he owned now that his daddy had touched, well, besides himself. He sorted out two nickels and handed them to a pasty boy in a white apron who was there to serve the machine. The boy felt around in its vitals and filled a white paper bag with the corn, not taking his eye off Enoch's purse the while. On any other day, Enoch would have tried to make friends with him, but today he was too preoccupied even to see him. He took the bag and began stuffing the pouch back where it had come from. The youth's eyes followed to the very edge of the pocket. That thing looks like a hog bladder, he observed enviously. I got to go now, Enoch murmured and hurried into the drugstore. Inside, he walked abstractedly to the back of the store and then up to the front again by the other aisle as if he wanted any person who might be looking for him to see he was there. He paused in front of the soda fountain 
to see if he would sit down and have something to eat. The fountain counter was pink and green marble linoleum, and behind it was a red-headed waitress in a lime-colored uniform and pink apron. She had green eyes set in pink, and they resembled a picture behind her of a lime cherry surprise. That was the special that day for ten cents. She confronted Enoch while he studied the information over her head. After a minute, she laid her chest on the counter and surrounded it by her folded arms to wait. Enoch couldn't decide which of several concoctions was the one for him to have until she ended it by moving one arm under the counter and bringing out a lime cherry surprise. It's okay, she said. I fixed it this morning after breakfast. Something's gonna happen to me today. Enoch said. I told you it was okay, she said. I fixed it today. I seen it this morning when I woke up, he said with the look of a visionary. God, she said, and jerked it from under his face. She turned around and began slapping things together. In a second, she slammed another exactly like it but fresh in front of him. I gots to go now, Enoch said and hurried out. An eye caught at his pocket as he passed the popcorn machine, but he didn't stop. I don't want to do it, he was saying to himself. Whatever it is, I don't want to do it. I'm going home. It'll be something I don't want to do. It'll be something I ain't got no business doing. And he thought of how he had had to spend all his money on drapes and guilt when he could have bought him a shirt and a phosphorescent tie. It'll be something against the law, he said. It's always something against the law. I ain't gonna do it, he said, and he stopped. He had stopped in front of a movie house where there was a large illustration of a monster stuffing a young woman into an incinerator. I ain't going to no picture show like that he said, giving it a nervous look. I'm going home. I ain't going to wait around in no picture show. I ain't got the money to buy a ticket, he said, taking on his purse again. I ain't even going to count this here change. It ain't but 43 cent, he said. That ain't enough. A sign said, the price of a ticket for adults was 45 cents. Balcony, 35. I ain't gonna sit in no balcony, he said, buying himself a 35-cent ticket. I ain't a-going in, he said. Two doors flew open, and he found himself moving down a long red foyer and then up a darker tunnel, and then up a higher, still darker tunnel. In a few minutes, he was up in the high part of the mall, feeling around like Jonah for a seat. I ain't a gonna look at it, he said furiously. He didn't like any picture shows, but colored, musical ones. The first picture was about a scientist named The Eye, who performed operations by remote control. You would wake up in the morning and find a slit in your chest or head or stomach, and something you couldn't do without would be gone. Enoch pulled his hat down very low and drew his knees up in front of his face. Only his eyes looked at the screen. 
That picture lasted an hour. The second picture was about life at Devil's Island Penitentiary. After a while, Enoch had to grip the arms of his seat to keep himself from falling over the rail in front of him. The third picture was called Lonnie Comes Home Again. It was about a baboon named Lonnie who rescued attractive children from a burning orphanage. Enoch kept hoping Lonnie would get burned up, but he didn't appear to even get hot. At the end, a nice-looking girl gave him a medal. It was more than Enoch could stand. He made a dive for the aisle, fell down the two higher tunnels, and raced out the red foyer and into the street. He collapsed as soon as the air hit him. When he recovered himself, he was sitting against the wall of the picture show building, and he was not thinking any more about escaping his duty. It was night, and he had the feeling that the knowledge he couldn't avoid was almost on him. The was perfect. He leaned against the wall for about 20 minutes, then he got up and began to walk down the street as if he were led by a silent melody or by one of those whistles that only dogs can hear. At the end of two blocks, he stopped, his attention directed across the street. There, facing him under a streetlight, was a high rat-colored car, and up on the nose of it, a dark figure with a fierce white hat on. The figure's arms were working up and down, and he had thin, gesticulating hands, almost as pale as the hat. Hazel Motes! Enoch breathed, and his heart began to slam from side to side like a wild bell clapper. There were a few people standing on the sidewalk near the car. Enoch didn't know that Hazel Motes had started the church without Christ and was preaching it every night on the street. He hadn't seen him since that day at the park when he had shown him the shriveled man in the glass case. If you had been redeemed, Hazel Most was shouting, you would care about redemption, but you don't. Look inside yourselves and see if you hadn't rather it wasn't if it was. There's no peace for the redeemed, and I preach peace. I preach the church without Christ, the church peaceful and satisfied. Two or three people who had stopped near the car started walking off the other way. Leave, Hazel Motes cried. Go ahead and leave. The truth don't matter to you. Listen, he said to the rest of them. The truth don't matter to you. If Jesus had redeemed you, what difference would it make to you? You wouldn't do nothing about it. Your faces wouldn't move, neither this way nor that. And if it was three crosses there and him hung in the middle one, that one wouldn't mean no more to you and me than the other two. Listen here, what you need is something to take the place of Jesus, something that would speak plain. The church without Christ don't have a Jesus, but it needs one. It needs a new Jesus. It needs one that's all man, without blood to waste. And it needs one that don't look like any other man, so you'll look at him. Give me such a Jesus, you people. Give me such a new Jesus, and you'll see how far the church without Christ can go. One of the people watching walked off so that there were only two left. Enoch was standing in the middle of the street, paralyzed. Show me where this new Jesus is, Hazelmoats cried, and I'll set him up in the church without Christ, and then you'll see the truth. Then you'll know once and for all that you haven't been redeemed. Give me this new Jesus. Somebody. 
so that we'll all be saved by the sight of him. Enoch began shouting without a sound. He shouted that way for a full minute while Hazel Motes went on. Look at me, Hazel Motes cried with a tear in his throat, and you'll look at a peaceful man, peaceful because my blood has set me free. Take counsel from your blood and come into the church without Christ and maybe somebody will bring us a new Jesus and we'll all be saved by the sight of him. An unintelligible sound spluttered out of Enoch. He tried to bellow, but his blood held him back, and he whispered, Listen here, I got him. I mean, I can get him. You know, him. Him I done shown you to. You seen him yourself. His blood reminded him that the last time he had seen Hayes Motes was when Hayes Motes had hit him over the head with a rock and he didn't even know yet how he would steal it out of the glass case. The only thing he knew was that he had a place in his room prepared to keep it in until Hayes was ready to take it. His blood suggested he just let it come as a surprise to Hayes Motes. He began to back away. He backed across the street and over a piece of sidewalk and out into the other street, and a taxi had to stop short to keep from hitting him. The driver put his head out the window and asked him how he got around so well when God had made him by putting two backs together instead of a back and a front. Enoch was too preoccupied to think about it. I got to go now, he murmured, and he hurried off. Chapter 9 Hawks kept his door bolted, and whenever Hayes knocked on it, which he did two or three times a day, the ex-evangelist sent his child out to him and bolted the door again behind her. It infuriated him to have Hayes lurking in the house, thinking up some excuse to get in and look at his face. And he was often drunk and didn't want to be discovered that way. Hayes couldn't understand why the preacher didn't welcome him and act like a preacher should when he sees what he believes is a lost soul. He kept trying to get into the room again. The window he could have reached was kept locked, and the shade pulled down. He wanted to see if he could behind the black glasses. Every time he went to the door, the girl came out, and the bolt shut inside. And then he couldn't get rid of her. She followed him out to his car, and climbed in, and spoiled his rides. Or she followed him up to his room and sat. He abandoned the notion of seducing her and tried to protect himself. He hadn't been in the house a week before she appeared in his room, one night after he had gone to bed. She was holding a candle burning in a jelly glass and wore, hanging on her thin shoulders, a woman's nightgown that dragged on the floor behind her. Hayes didn't wake up until she was almost to his bed, and when he did, he sprang from under his cover into the middle of the room. "'What do you want?' he said. She didn't say anything, and her grin widened in the candlelight. He stood glowering at her for an instant, and then he picked up the straight chair and raised it, as if he were going to bring it down on her. She lingered only a fraction of a second. His door didn't bolt, so he propped the chair under the knob before he went back to bed. Listen, she said when she got back to their room. Nothing works. He would have hit me with a chair. I'm leaving out of here in a couple of days, Huck said. You better make it work if you want to eat after I'm gone. He was drunk, but he meant it.
Nothing was working the way Hayes expected it to. He had spent every evening preaching, but the membership of the Church Without Christ was still only one person, himself. He had wanted to have a large following quickly to impress the blind man with his powers, but no one had followed him. There had been a sort of follower, but that had been a mistake. That had been a boy of about 16 years old who had wanted someone to go to a whorehouse with him because he had never been to one before. He knew where the place was, but he didn't want to go without a person of experience, and he had heard Hayes. He hung around until he stopped preaching, and then he asked him to go. But it was all a mistake, because after they had gone and got out again, and Hayes had asked him to be a member of the Church Without Christ, or more than that, a disciple, an apostle, the boy said he was sorry, but he couldn't be a member of that church because he was a lapsed Catholic. He said that what they had just done was a mortal sin, and that should they die unrepentant of it, they would suffer eternal punishment and never see God. Hayes had not enjoyed the whorehouse anywhere near as much as the boy had, and he had wasted half his evening. He shouted that there was no such thing as sin or judgment, but the boy only shook his head and asked him if he would like to go again the next night. If Hayes had believed in praying, he would have prayed for a disciple, but as it was, all he could do was worry about it a lot. Then two nights after the boy, the disciple appeared. That night he preached outside of four different picture shows, and every time he looked up, he saw the same face smiling at him. The man was plumpish, and he had curly blonde hair that was cut with showy sideburns. He wore a black suit with a silver stripe in it, and a wide-brimmed white hat pushed to his head, and he had on tight-fitting black-pointed shoes and no socks. He looked like an ex-preacher turned cowboy, or an ex-cowboy turned mortician. He was not handsome, but under his smile there was an honest look that fit into his face like a set of false teeth. Every time that Hayes looked at him, the man winked. At the last picture show he preached in front of, there were three people listening to him besides the man. Do people care anything about the truth? he asked. The only way to the truth is through blasphemy. But do you care? Are you going to pay any attention to what I've been saying? Or are you just going to walk off like everybody else? There were two men and a woman with a cat-faced baby sprawled over her shoulder. She had been looking at Hayes as if he were a booth at the fair. Well, come on, she said. He's finished. We gotta be going. She turned away and the two men fell in behind her. Go, go ahead and go, but remember that the truth don't lurk around every street corner. The man who had been following reached up quickly and pulled Hayes' pant leg and gave him a wink. Come on back here, folks, he said. I want to tell you all about me. The woman turned around again and he smiled at her as if he had been struck all along with her good looks. She had a square red face and her hair was freshly set. I wished I had my guitar here, the man said, because I can just somehow say sweet things to music better than plain. And when you talk about Jesus, you need a little music, don't you, friends? He looked at the two men as if he were appealing to the good judgment that was impressed on their faces. They had on brown felt hats and black town suits and looked like older and younger brothers. Listen, friends, the disciple said confidentially, Two months ago, before I met the prophet here, you wouldn't know me for the same man. 
I didn't have a friend in the world. Do you know what it's like not to have a friend in the world? It ain't no worse than having them put a knife in your back when you wasn't looking, the older man said, barely parting his lips. Friend, you said a mouthful when you said that, the man said. If we had time, I would have you repeat that just so everybody could hear it like I did. The picture show was over and more people were coming out. Friends, I know you're all interested in the profit here, he said, pointing to Hayes on the nose of the car. And if you just give me time, I'm going to tell you what him and his ideas have done for me. Don't crowd around because I'm willing to stay here all night and tell you if it takes that long. Hayes stood where he was, motionless, with his head slightly forward, as if he wasn't sure what he was hearing. Friends, let me introduce myself. My name is Ani J. Holy, and I'm telling it so you can check up and see I don't tell you any lies. I'm a preacher. I don't mind who knows it, but I wouldn't have you believe nothing you can't feel in your own hearts. You people coming up on the edge there, right up in here where you can hear good, he said. I'm not selling a thing. I'm giving something away. A considerable number of people had stopped. Friends, two months ago you wouldn't have known me for the same man. I didn't have a friend in the world. Do you know what it's like to not have a friend in the world? A loud voice said, It ain't no worse than having them that would put... Why, friends? Adi J. Holy said. Not a friend in the world is just about the most miserable and lonesome thing that can happen to a man or a woman. And that's the way it was for me. I was ready to hang myself or to despair completely. Not even my own dear old mother loved me. And it wasn't because I wasn't sweet inside. It was because I'd never known how to make the natural sweetness inside me show. Every person that comes onto this earth, he said, stretching in his arms, is born sweet and full of love. A little child loves everybody. And friends, its nature is sweetness. Until something happens. Something happens, friends. I don't need to tell people like you that can think for themselves. But as little child gets bigger, cares and troubles come to perplex it, and all its sweetness is driven inside it. Then it gets miserable and lonesome and sick. Friends, it says, where has all my sweetness gone? Where are all the friends that love me? And all the time that little beat-up rose of sweetness is inside, not a petal dropped, and on the outside is just a mean lonesomeness. It may take its own life or yours or mine or to despair completely, he said in a sad nasal voice. But he was smiling all the time so that you couldn't tell that he had been through what he was talking about and had come out on top. That was the way it was with me, friends. I know what I speak of, he said and folded his hands in front of him. But all that time I was ready to hang myself or to despair completely. I was sweet inside like everybody else and I only needed something to bring it out. I only needed a little help, friends. Then I met this prophet here, he said, pointing at Hayes on the nose of the car. That was two months ago, folks, that I heard how he was out to help me, how he was preaching the church of Christ without Christ, the church that was new Jesus to help me bring my sweet nature into the open where everybody could enjoy it. That was two months ago, friends, and now you wouldn't know me for the same man. I love every one of you people. And I want you to listen to him and me and join our church, the Holy Church of Christ without Christ, the new church with the new Jesus. Be helped like me. Hayes leaned forward. 
This man is not true, he said. I never saw him before tonight. I wasn't preaching this church two months ago, and the name of it ain't the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. The man ignored this, and so did the people. There were ten or twelve gathered around. Friends, Audie J. Holy said, I'm mighty glad you're seeing me now instead of two months ago, because then I couldn't have testified to this new church and this new prophet here. If I had my guitar with me, I could say all this better, but I'll just have to do the best I can by myself. He had a winning smile, and it was evident that he didn't think he was any better than anybody else, even though he was. Now, I just want to give you folks a few reasons why you can trust this church. In the first place, friends, you can rely on it that it's nothing foreign connected with it. You don't have to believe nothing you don't understand. If you don't understand it, it ain't true. And that's all there is to it. No jokers in the deck, friends. Hayes leaned forward. Blasphemy is the way to the truth, and there's no other way whether you understand it or not. Now, friends, Ani J said, I want to tell you a second reason why you can absolutely trust this church. It's based on the Bible. Yes, sir, it's based on your own personal interpretation of the Bible. Friends, you can sit at home and interpret your own Bible however you feel in your heart it ought to be interpreted. That's right, just the way Jesus would have done. Gee, I wished I had my guitar here, he complained. This man is a liar, Hayes said. I never seen him before tonight. I never... That ought to be enough reasons, friends, Ani J. Holy said. But I'm going to tell you one more, just to show you I can. This church is up to date. When you're in this church, you can know that there's nothing or nobody ahead of you. Nobody knows nothing you don't know. All the cards are on the table, friends, and that's a fact. Hayes's face under the white hat began to take out a look of fierceness. Just as he was about to open his mouth again, Ani J. Holy pointed in astonishment to the baby in the blue bonnet who was sprawled limp over the woman's shoulder. Why, yonder is a little baby, a little bundle of helplessness. Why, I know you people aren't going to let this little thing grow up and have all his sweetness pushed inside him when it could be on the outside to win friends and make him loved. That's why I want every one of you people to join the Holy Church of Christ without Christ. It'll cost you each a dollar, but what is a dollar? A few dimes. Not too much to pay to unlock that little rose of sweetness inside of you. Listen, Hayes shouted. It don't cost you any money to know the truth. You can't know it for money. You hear what the prophet says, friends? A dollar is not too much to pay, Ani J. Holy said. No amount of money is too much to learn the truth. And I want each of you people that are going to take advantage of this church to sign on this little pad I have here in my pocket and give me your dollar personally and let me shake your hand. Hayes slid down the nose of the car and got in it and slammed his foot on the starter. Hey, wait! Ollie J. Holy shouted. I ain't got any of these friends' names yet. The Essex had a tendency to develop a tick by nightfall. It would go forward about six inches and then fall back about four. It did that now a succession of times rapidly. Otherwise, Hayes would have shot off and been gone. He had to grip the steering wheel with both hands to keep from being thrown either out the windshield or into the back. It stopped this after a few seconds and slid about 20 feet, and then it began again. Ani J. Holy's face showed a great strain. He put his hand to the side of it, 
as if the only way he could keep his smile on was to hold it. I'm going to go now, friend, he said quickly, but I'll be at the same spot tomorrow night. I've got to go catch the prophet now. And he ran off just as the Essex began to slide again. He wouldn't have caught it except that it stopped before it had gone ten feet further. He jumped on the running board and got the door open and plumped in, panting beside a haze. Friend, we just lost ten dollars. What are you in such a hurry for? His face showed that he was in some kind of genuine pain, even though he looked at Hayes with a smile that revealed all his upper teeth on the tops of his lowers. Hayes turned his head and looked at him long enough to see the smile before it was thrown forward at the windshield. After that, the Essex began running smoothly. Ani Jay took out a lavender handkerchief and held it in front of his mouth for some time. When he removed it, the smile was back on his face. Friend, you and me have got to get together on this thing. I said when I first heard you open your mouth, why yonder is a great man with great ideas. Hayes didn't turn his head. Ani Jay took in a long breath. Why, do you know who you put me in mind of when I first saw you? He asked after a minute of waiting. Then he said in a soft voice, Jesus Christ and Abraham Lincoln, friend. Hayes's face was suddenly swamped with outrage. All the expression on it was obliterated. You ain't true, he said in a barely audible voice. Friend, how can you say that? Why, I was on the radio for three years with a program that give real religious experiences. Didn't you ever listen to it? Called Soulsies, a quarter hour of mood, melody, and mentality. I'm a real preacher, friend. Hayes stopped the Essex. You get out, he said. Why, friend, Ani Jay said. You ought not to say such a thing. That's the absolute truth. I'm a preacher and a radio star. Get out. Hayes said, reaching across and opening the door for him. I never thought you would treat a friend this way, Ani Jay said. All I wanted was to ask you about this new Jesus. Get out, Hayes said, and began to push him toward the door. He pushed him to the edge of the seat and gave him a shove. Ani Jay fell out the door and into the road. I never thought a friend would treat me this way, he complained. Hayes kicked his leg off the running board and shut the door again. He put his foot on the starter, but nothing happened except a noise somewhere underneath that sounded like a person gargling without water. Ani Jay got up off the pavement and stood at the window. If you would just tell me where this new Jesus is you were mentioning, he began. Hayes put his foot on the starter a succession of times, but nothing happened. Pull out the choke, Ani Jay advised, getting up on the running board. There ain't no choke on it, Hayes snarled. Maybe it's flooded, Ani Jay said. While you're waiting, you and me can talk about the holy church of Christ without Christ. My church is the church without Christ, Hayes said. I've seen all of you I want to. Don't make no difference how many Christs you add to the name if you don't add none to the meaning, friend. Ani Jay said in a hurt tone. You ought to listen to me because I'm not just any amateur. I'm an artist type. If you want to get anywheres in religion, you got to keep it sweet. You got good ideas, but what you need is an artist type to work with you. Hayes ramped his foot on the gas and then on the starter and then on the starter and then on the gas. Nothing happened. The street was practically deserted. 
Me and you could get behind it and push it over the curb, Annie J suggested. I ain't asked for your help, Hayes said. You know, friend, I would certainly like to see this new Jesus, Annie J said. I never heard an idea before that had more to it than that one. All it would need is a little promotion. Hayes tried to start the car by forcing his weight forward on the steering wheel, but that didn't work. He got up behind it and began to push it over to the curb. Annie J got behind him and added his weight. I kind of have heard that idea about a new Jesus myself, he remarked. I seen how a new one would be more up to date. Where are you keeping him, friend? he asked. Is he somebody you see every day? I certainly would like to meet him and hear some of his ideas. They pushed the car into a parking space. There was no way to lock it. And Hayes was afraid that if he left it out all night so far from where he lived, someone would be able to steal it. There was nothing for him to do but sleep in it. He got in the back and began to pull down the fringe shades. Annie J had his head in the front, however. You needn't be afraid that if I'd seen this new Jesus, I would cut you out of anything. My friend, it would just mean a lot to me for the good of my spirit. Hayes moved the two-by-four off the seat frame to make more room to fix up his pallet. He kept a pillow and an army blanket back there, and he had a sterno stove and a coffee pot up on the shelf under the back oval window. Friend, I would even be glad to pay you a little something to see him, Annie J suggested. Listen here, Hayes said. You get away from here. I've seen all of you I want to. There's no such thing as any new Jesus. That ain't anything but a way to say something. The smile more or less slithered off Annie J's face. What do you mean by that? he asked. That there's no such thing or person, Hayes said. It wasn't nothing but a way to say a thing. He put his hand on the door handle and began to close it in spite of Annie J's head. No such thing exists, he shouted. That's the trouble with you intellectuals, Annie J muttered. You don't never have nothing to show for what you're saying. Get your head out of my door, holy, Hayes said. My name is Hoover Schultz, the man with his head in the door growled. I known when I first seen you that you wasn't nothing but a crackpot. Hayes opened the door enough to be able to slam it. Hoover Schultz got his head out of the way, but not his thumb. A howl arose that would have rended almost any heart. Hayes opened the door and released the thumb, then slammed it again. He pulled down the front shades and laid down in the back of the car in the army blanket. Outside, he could hear Hoover shouts jumping around on the pavement and howling. When the howls died down, Hayes heard a few steps up to the car and then an impassioned, breathless voice say through the tin, You watch out, friend. I'm going to run you out of the business. I can get my own new Jesus and I can get profits for peanuts. Do you hear me? Do you hear me, friend? The hoarse voice said. Hayes didn't answer. Yeah, and I'll be out there doing my own preaching tomorrow night. What you need is a little competition, the voice said. Do you hear me, friend? Hayes got up and leaned over the front seat and banged his hand down on the horn of the Essex. It made a sound like a goat's laugh cut off with a buzzsaw. Hoover shouts, jumped back as if a charge of electricity had gone through him. All right, friend, he said, standing about 15 feet away, trembling. You just wait. You ain't heard the last of me yet. 
and he turned and went off down the quiet street. Hayes stayed in his car for about an hour and had a bad experience in it. He dreamed he was not dead, but only buried. He was not waiting on the judgment because there was no judgment. He was waiting on nothing. Various eyes looked through the back oval window at his situation, some with considerable reverence, like the boy from the zoo, and some only to see what they could see. There were three women with paper sacks who looked at him critically as if he were something, a piece of fish that they might buy. But they passed on after a minute. A man in a canvas hat looked in and put his thumb to his nose and wiggled his fingers. Then a woman with two little boys on either side of her stopped and looked in grinning. After a second, she pushed the boys out of view and indicated that she would climb in and keep him company for a while. But she couldn't get in through the glass, and finally she went off. All this time, Hayes was bent on getting out. But since there was no use to try, he didn't make any move one way or the other. He kept expecting Hawks to appear at the oval window with a wrench, but the blind man didn't come. Finally, he shook off the dream and woke up. He thought it should be morning, but it was only midnight. He pulled himself over to the front of the car and eased his foot on the starter, and the Essex rolled off quietly, as if nothing were the matter with it. He drove back to the house and let himself in, but instead of going upstairs to his room, he stood in the hall looking at the blind man's door. He went over to ear to the keyhole and heard the sound of snoring. He turned the knob gently, but the door didn't move. For the first time, the idea of picking the lock occurred to him. He felt in his pockets for an instrument and came out with a small piece of wire he sometimes used for a toothpick. There was only a dim light in the hall, but it was enough for him to work by, and he knelt at the keyhole and inserted the wire into it, carefully, trying not to make a noise. After a while, when he had tried the wire five or six different ways, there was a slight click in the lock. He stood up trembling and opened the door. His breath came short and his heart was palpitating, as if he had run all the way here from a great distance. He stood just inside the room until his eyes got accustomed to the darkness. Then he moved slowly over to the iron bed and stood there. Hawks was lying across it. His head was hanging over the edge. Hayes squatted down and struck a match close to his face, and he opened his eyes. The two sets of eyes looked at each other as long as the match lasted. Hayes' expression seemed to open onto a deeper blankness and reflect something, and then close again. Now you can get out, Hawk said in a short, thick voice. Now you can leave me alone. And he made a jab at the face over him without touching it. It moved back, expressionless under the white hat, and was gone in a second.